In this episode, we'll be answering some of our listener questions. We'll be covering a wide range of topics, including buyer's agent secret tactics for buying property prior to auction, how inflation devalues money and the impact on property asset values, when to take a break from thinking about property investment, strategies for property investing on a low income, and will the average home in Melbourne ever be worth $45 million? Welcome to The Elephant in the Room. This is the podcast where we love to talk about the big things in property that never usually get talked about. I'm Veronica Morgan, real estate agent, buyer's agent and buyer's agent mentor, co-host of Foxtel's Location, Location, Location Australia, author of Auction Ready and co-host of Your First Home Buyer Guide. And I'm Chris Bates, mortgage broker, recently ranked number five in Australia out of over 18,000 brokers in the annual MPA Top 100 Mortgage Broker Awards. Before we get started, I need to let you know that nothing we say here can be taken as personal advice. We always recommend you engage the services of an appropriate and experienced professional. Our first question is from Talon, and this is it. How does a buyer's agent stop a property from going to auction? How can you convince a seller to not go to auction when they know it's likely they'll get a better price? Haven't they spoken to their agent who's convinced them to do an auction and get a great price? I'm so curious about this. We had a buyer's agent do this for us and I always wondered how. You got any thoughts on this one, Chris? I obviously do, but I mean, I guess this is definitely up your court, um, Veronica. You've done this thousands of times, but I guess, you know, my first observation, it's not always about money, right? It's, it's sometimes about the terms, sometimes about just certainty um, and maybe allow them to do something else. So it might be, you know, if they sell today, not in two weeks at auction, they may be able to get into the market and buy that property on the market right now. So, you know, and, and sometimes there's the speed, just being having quick offer sorted allows them to do other things. So I'd just be saying price is not always the motivation for a lot of sellers. And then potentially there's some ability for an agent and the buyer's agent to basically get a deal done because it's in both their interests as well. I've definitely seen that happen as well. So what's your take on this, Veronica? Is, um, what's your, yeah, what do you think? Well, you know, I've written a book on auctions. So if anyone's interested in more of this, it's called Auction Ready. Um, before I say anything about how a buyer's agent goes about doing this, I'll give a bit of background because the thing is any buyer's agent that runs around saying, oh, I buy everything prior to auction, well, that's a massive warning bell in my view because typically to do so, you have to pay overs all the time. Now, in my business at the moment and in fact pretty much all the time, we track ultimate sales price compared to our price research. And so when you do that, you can work out whether strategically you want to be buying a property prior to auction or at auction, right? There are different market conditions when it's really easy to buy prior to auction and, you know, you can get everything prior to auction. And there's other market conditions where it's difficult to buy prior to auction and it's hard and you're not going to buy much prior to auction. And when, when it's, and that's a seller's market, right? When it's a seller's market, agents get lots of competitions for the property. And you know what? There's no huge risk for a vendor and for an agent to to reject an offer prior to auction because they've got lots of other buyers they're going to they're confident going to turn up and bid for it right so when that's the situation you have to finally calibrate your offer you have to really know what the tipping point is where that owner and the agent are no longer prepared to take the risk and so that's quite scientific right and I don't see enough buyer's agents actually doing the analysis that's required to really hit this 
right on the nail, right? You know, they can they can get very heavy-handed with their offers. And you've always got to remember that the selling agent knows a hell of a lot more about all the other buyers and about the vendor's motivations and all that sort of stuff. They know more than everybody else in the game, right? They know more than the buyer's agents. They know more than every other buyer. So a, a really good buyer's agent, an established, experienced buyer's agent who also knows those agents and how they work will be very good at filling in the, the puzzles of, you know, the, the missing pieces of the jigsaw puzzle to, to really come up with a good hypothesis of really the situation. And also they will do thorough pricing research as well. So they've got a really good grasp on how good this asset is and how likely it, you know competition is uh, or the likelihood of competition, how, how hard that competition will push on the price, but also really what would be a reasonable price versus what would be a premium price. Now, for example, lately this year, uh, there's been sort of slow but continued upward pressure on prices in Sydney, and we track ultimate sale prices compared to our research on the properties that we've done full pricing research for. And if we can buy prior at the moment, we're able to buy on average within that price range that we've researched. If we go to auction, on average, there's a premium over the price research that we do, which is currently sitting at 9.33%. So in my business, if we see an opportunity to buy a property prior in the current market with all that data, we can see that there's an absolute case for trying to go in early. But then we're not always going to be successful because if that agent has got lots of feedback from buyers, et cetera, et cetera, and they think, you know what, it's it's going to go off like a frog in a sock, then why would they sell it to us at, at a price that's lower than they're confident they're going to get? So we've got to basically hit that offer at an at a absolute point that we think sounds like, oh, I don't want to let one go. I don't want to let that one go. And the thing to to be thinking about is that if if that's really good value and that's going to be less than it potentially will get at auction, then other buyers are going to be ready to compete with us. And when they compete with us prior to auction, it's blind. They can't, we can't see, and we we have to take the agent's word for it in terms of where other buyers are at. So going to auction has the benefit of being transparent. But we also know that there's, you know, the moment on the types of property we go for, I will say this does not apply for every single property because we go for A-grade properties. So therefore, you can expect it to be competitive. So you've got to be very, very careful how you go in. I see a lot of buyers agents go in prior to auction and they are not strategic about it. They just throw a lot of money at it and the agent is going to grab that and run. You know, if that an agent, and when I was a sales agent, if the offer was head and shoulders above every other buyer, they're going to take it and run. It's going to be really easy to buy that property prior to auction. So I would say that there are definite ways in which we are very careful and very tight in terms of when we make that offer and when when we want to close it out. But we've also got to not play silly buggers and insult people and, and offend them. And it's a very delicate operation to buy a property prior to auction and not overpay. So I, that, that's my thoughts on it. Yeah, and I've also seen clients um, you know, use the urgency where, you know, it's not going to auction in two weeks, but we're really in love with this other property and you are considered one of the better buyers for the property. And, you know, that feeling that if they do buy that other property on Saturday, that they're going to they're gonna lose their best buyer. And so, you know, that, and that, so that might not work on a super hot and in lots of different market conditions, but Absolutely. I've seen, you know, clients and buyers agents use that tactic where it's like, I can't wait around for two weeks because 
we've got another property we're considering, but we prefer yours if you're willing to take it for this price. If not, we're going to this property uh, and get a bid on this tomorrow night and you might lose us as your best buy. I wouldn't say those exact words, but I've definitely seen you know things like that. So yeah, money's not always the case. It's about certainty and you know, a lot of other things. So what's um, what's question Look, number two? I was about to say just on that though, and that's true, you know, you can, and this is, I hear a lot of buyers trying to bluff the sales agent. Yeah. You've got to realize you can't bluff a bluffer, right? So if you are going to a buyer, a, an agent, and saying, look, you know, we want to buy it this week because otherwise we've got this other one coming up, they're going to want to know what it is. Yeah, exactly. Right? Yeah. And you better have all your all your little all your evidence lined up in terms yeah. of to stack up to 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 uh, make your claim sound credible. These people run around going, "That's it, my offer's you know valid till three p.m. Then I'm going to come and take my contract back." You know, like I have to say, when I was uh, yeah. a much yeah. more naive buyer's agent, I tried those tactics that they do not win friends and influence people. Yeah. And unless you're going to use a proper deadline or you're going to come up with some other property or some reason why you're you know, you got a timer on or a time limit on your offer. It's got to be real, otherwise the agent was just like, "Yeah, whatever." I heard that one before. We'll see you on auction day. And you know what? They they see this day in day out. You know, the, people think they're so smart. They come up with these, they come up with these sort of lines, and they don't realize the agents heard it all before. Yeah, 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 <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. I think I, I think back in the day, I thought that you know the time frame and all that. You know, a long time ago. I thought yeah. that was definitely, but you know, I mean, generally where I've seen this work for buyers agents is where they've got the printed out contract. Um, they've actually got a genuine comparable property. It might not be as good as what they want. And, you know, well, I don't know whether the agent really believes them or not. I think that they, they make the opinion that, you know, that, but does the agent need to believe them? I don't know. Sometimes, sometimes the agent wants the deal done, right? They, you know, they can have that story to the vendor and say, well, now they are really considering this property. In their heart, they think they're not really going to go for it. But, you know, sometimes the agent just needs to get those two ends to meet and that's enough to get the vendor to take the offer. I don't know. I, I do. It's look, There are some times when that is the case. And there are some times when people genuinely are stressed out and don't want to go to auction. They just want the certainty. And sometimes that is the case. I would say that's the minority of circumstances. And, you know, like, for example, we recently we've got a, we've got a cash buyer, you know, on our, on our books and he was saying to, well, you know, cash is worth something and it it actually isn't Um, because the thing is that you know you could uh somebody's going to borrow money from the bank and might they might take another week or two to get it but at the end of the day if they could get the funds the funds are the funds yeah exactly cash doesn't make any difference to an owner and so it's interesting how people there's a lot of myths out there around what your advantage is and you know at the moment if it's a seller's market the buyer doesn't have a huge amount of advantage and obviously that turns around when it becomes a buyer's market but you just got to recognize, you know, when you've got a real advantage, when you don't. And also that agents, that they're the ones that practice the dialogue all day long. You don't, you know. And so they're going to be a lot more convincing in their dialogue to you than you are going to be in your dialogue to them. All right. But in terms of giving a signed contract, that is certainly something that we used to do a lot with a check attached to it. But the thing is, these days we've got things like auction pay, and in fact, contracts are more often than not signed with DocuSign now. So the actual ability to turn up with, there you go, there's a contract, there's a there's a 66W in New South Wales, It's it's a that's the document that waives the cooling off period, and your deposit check, and you go in there, and that, that's a physical thing that has some real weight to it. Those things have vanished now. I mean, I, I, you've got a 66W, you can go, yes, I've got one, but everything else has, takes a little bit of time still. 
So that that has changed that somewhat. All, All right. right. Our next question. question. Alex. Now, Alex has sent a, a few questions, actually. We're, we're just reading two. So thank you very much for your interest in uh, in our Q&A episodes, Alex. Uh, we rarely discuss real price growth in mainstream media when we take inflation into account. Many are reporting our market is on the march to another growth phase when really it looks like it's quite flat. Now, why is that? Is it too hard to talk to devaluation of money and how it changes asset prices? It's a good question, Alex. It's I a mean, great question, isn't it? I mean, it's, it was uh, the good Chris Joy when he was talking about the market fall and it dropped, you know, eight, nine percent. He goes, well, and you had inflation on it, fell close to 15 percent, which was what he was forecasting. But I think you're right. I think people don't minus off inflation and the net real growth is what people think about. Um, and but I do think it's, it's it's two sides to this coin, right? So yeah, I mean, if your property goes from two million, oh, let's just do different numbers. Let's say your property goes from one million to two million, right? I made a million dollars. Well, no, you didn't really. How long did you own that property? What did you need to spend on it? What the cost to buy? Did you have to pay capital gains tax? How much does the inflation take out of that? Like, absolutely, it's a great question, and people don't think about that because that million dollars isn't that. It maybe was eight hundred thousand, and then you had to take inflation off, and it took ten years to to do that and so maybe it's only worth four hundred thousand. and so even thinking like this alex is really smart um because it seems a lot more than it is once you take off inflation um i mean but also i think you got to think about from the debt point of view so you take a property out uh, a loan out and that debt's inflating away so that million dollars of you know a five hundred thousand dollars mortgage a decade ago is not the same as a five hundred thousand dollar mortgage today right and so if you just went interest only over 10 years, yes, you got the price growth. You didn't have to pay that mortgage off. Um, and so that mortgage is is, is less um, in the future. You know, wages have gone up, you know, um, et cetera. So I think you can use inflation as your friends with debt as well. You know, this is what the governments around the world, as long as the interest rate's not that high, um, then um, over time, even though you've got a lot of debt, if the interest bill is serviceable, um, then that debt becomes, you know, less as an actual cost over time because it inflates away as well. So there's two sides to it, I would say. Um, but, you know, you're right. I mean, it's much more impressive to talk about uh, all-time highs and big growth rates and not minus off inflation, which is really relative um, uh, when, uh, you know, rates of inflation is really high, right? When inflation is really low, it doesn't matter as much. And right now, obviously, it does. If you're comparing different assets, classes so so you sort of because often you get this lovely you know i like to, or a lot of people i don't too but a lot of people like to compare shares to property and try to explain why shares may be better or worse than than property as a an investment class if you create if you're comparing the results of two investments held over the same period of time do you have to worry about inflation or just assume that it's constant um that applies evenly to both of them so therefore it doesn't matter well, I think your net asset base, so you, put, you invest a million dollars into shares, you invest a million dollars into property, and then at some point you sell those assets. Well, your cash has just gone from a million to two million, right? And then you take your inflation off that, you know, because two million in 10 or 20 years' time doesn't buy you what a million dollars does today, right? And so, I will, you know, in terms of a million today, won't buy you a million dollars in the future. So, yeah, no, how you get there doesn't probably matter as much because. You know, as long as you're selling those assets at that point of view and you've got the same amount of money put into a bank account, then you've got, um, yeah, so I wouldn't say that matters. But the other thing too that's interesting is that capital gains tax on um, an investment property, there's a discount that is applied, which is called the 
capital gain tax discount of 50%. And that is actually designed to take into account inflation. And so it's designed to make, make sure you're not paying tax on the benefit of what has inflated over time. So it's interesting that, and that was designed to simplify the tax, uh, I guess, the tax process or the, the, you, the process your accountant has to go through in, in determining what the contribution of inflation has been that you shouldn't have to pay tax on. It's interesting you don't have to pay tax on inflation, don't you think? Well, yeah, exactly. And it's, it would just be uh, an even bigger tax in the future, right? The, the, but I mean, I guess that you can use that to your friend. I mean, if you trade access in uh, smaller timeframes and a 50% discount is quite generous, right? Um, over the longer term, obviously you're still paying, but you're still paying 20 to 25% of your gain in capital gains tax. And so the good thing about property versus shares is that you can pull your equity out of property, then reinvest that money back into shares and have not paid any capital gains tax because you haven't sold the property. So you can pull equity out of property and reinvest it and make more money on your gains because you can leverage against them, but still not pay capital gains tax. It's one of the big mistakes I see when people go shares versus property then they can't leverage back off the shares. So sometimes it's best to build the property portfolio first or even just one property and then use the equity within that to get the shares. Um, and then you could have the best of both worlds. You can have your 200 grand in shares, plus you could have your million dollar property as an example versus just your 200 grand in shares. That's a classic, isn't it? Effectively, you're investing your future tax liability. All right, this is the other question from Alex that we're reading today. As I said, he did send us a few. He says, I have my home now, big block, established area in the inner south of a kind and very livable city, Canberra. Yes, uh, it's an interesting description, a <laughs> kind city. So what do homeowners do once they have their home? Do we take a set and forget approach like super? Do we continue to stay educated about property? Do I start on my next priorities, like raising my three little ones and come back when it's time for our next home or adventure? What do you reckon? Well, I think you should definitely, uh, the priority should always be taking care of the, raising the kids. But I mean, on a financial point of view, um, yeah, I mean, I guess you've got to really think about it. Is there a benefit to upgrading? You know, you might not need to, you know, you might not really want to, but you might go, look, actually, we're not in the best asset. Sounds like you are okay, but it's actually a better asset we could get into that could give us better li lifestyle, but also give us a better investment return over the next 15 years while our little ones become not so little, right? Um. So I, I definitely explore that, right? But if you're so happy there, you love your neighbors, you love your street, you love your home, and there's no real tangible lifestyle benefit and there's no real investment benefit, then you go, all right, we're staying here, right? Um, and you might just stay there anyway, even if there wasn't investment benefit to, to leave, right? It's all about money, right? And so, but then you go, well, I'm on top of my mortgage um, and I built equity within it. So what do I do? Do I just keep smashing my mortgage down or do I use some of that equity to look at other investing do i put some more money into some shares do i start like an etf or um build a portfolio there do i buy an investment property you know absolutely taking advantage of things like super makes a lot of sense for a lot of people and so um yeah i mean and, and so i think it comes down to yeah if you're going to stay or not and if that's your decision once you're on top of your mortgage and you're really building equity in it you don't want to get to that point where you you pay your mortgage off because a lot of people think like that. Oh, I want to, if I pay my mortgage off, I get a guaranteed return of 6%. That's true. But by not putting money into super today, you will lose those benefits if, you know, there's catch up rules and things like that. But, you know, whereas huge tax advantages that dwarf that 6%, or by not buying an investment or shares today, I'm buying at future market prices, which may be much higher than 6%. So, you know, just paying off the mortgage because it's that guaranteed return. 
um, might not be just the best option. And what happens is I think a lot of people do that by the time they've paid their mortgage off, they're in their late 40s or early 50s, and then their risk appetite really reduces and they don't want to go into a lot of other investment debt when they could have done that five, 10 years earlier, even though they would have um, they paid their mortgage off later, maybe in their mid to late 50s rather than early 50s, but and they invested five or 10 years into a market cycle. So, I mean, I think you'd be on this, Alex, from your questions, but that would be the things I would think of. I'm on a personal mission to help more people make better property decisions. And you can find out all about what I'm working on at veronicamorgan.com.au. And there you'll find resources for first home buyers, details about my buyer's agent mentoring program, access to suburb help for investors, or if you're looking to buy your dream home or an investment property in Sydney's inner west, eastern suburbs or lower North Shore, you can connect with my team at Good Deeds Property Buyers. If you're thinking about buying your first home, upgrading to a new one, or purchasing an investment property anywhere in Australia, we would love to carefully guide you through this journey and importantly, get the finance right. Please reach out via our website, wealthful.com.au. Don't forget that you can download our free full or forecaster report. Which experts can you trust to get it right? Theelephantintheroom.com.au. I think obviously borrowing capacity and your future income as well will determine whether an investment property is on the horizon. And so if that doesn't look like it's going to change or, or substantially open up access to, to more funds, then obviously it's going to be difficult to look at property investment yeah. in, the, in the near to sort of medium term. But if you do have that flexibility, then the longer the runway you've got in property investment, the better. So, so I guess that would be one of your determining thoughts. Uh, also, your personal care factor. Now, obviously, Alex, I know that you've been following the podcast for some time. <laughs> so, so therefore, I'm su- I'm suspecting you will continue to educate yourself and will never be a set and forget for you. And, and along the lines of what Chris is talking there about, you know, your family home and if you've got a good asset and settling into that and just enjoying, enjoying life with your three little ones and your partner, obviously – um, you do have to be thinking how long will that house suit your needs because I think some people do tend to get themselves into an investment property probably a bit prematurely because they then cut off their opportunities to upgrade their home uh, or renovate their home or extend their home or whatever they might need to do for their growing family um, at some reasonable period in the future, maybe five to ten years' time. And so I think that that's a very important thing to look at as well and as anyone who listens to me will know that I'm not property or bust. You know, I think that talking to a financial planner and getting advice around other forms of investment and utilizing superannuation, which is, you know, Chris has just mentioned there, you know, like these are all things that should be considered in a holistic um, strategy anyway. And so, yeah, sitting and forgetting, just paying down debt without, without building or continuing to build in some way is sort of missing a lovely opportunity you might have given that you're young enough to have little kids. So yep. I imagine there's a bit of a runway, a working runway for you uh, to continue to invest in. Absolutely. Right. Our next question is from Soham. Um, and apologies if I've got the pronunciation incorrect. He says, I'm an avid listener of the podcast and had a question. So here it is. Frequently, you talk about historical sales rates for property in places like Sydney and Melbourne, circa 6 to 8% for investment-grade property over long periods of time. And then you project those numbers uh, out into the future as well when modelling the investments. Well, I won't say we do, but people do. Um, property, uh, you know, 
advisors will do that. We wouldn't necessarily do that, okay? And maybe we can talk about why we wouldn't do that. Okay, so this sometimes creates these scenarios where a million-dollar investment-grade property in inner Melbourne today becomes worth something like $46 million in 50 years if it grew at 8% or scenarios like that. But that intuitively seems far-fetched. Such a great question. I understand that the numbers seem to make sense. If something has been compounding for long periods of time at 8% on average, because nothing does the same every single year, then it should continue to do so for long periods of time. But at some point, doesn't the quantum of growth become absurd? Like that property growing at 8% is increasing its value by several million, million dollars in one year between year 48 and year 49, for example, if you held 50 years. So my question is, is there a terminal value of average property prices in places like Sydney and Melbourne where the growth will eventually reach and is it an asymptote? I haven't heard that term before, but I think I know what he means by it. What do you uh, reckon? Uh, so um, <laughs> I think it's a really good question. I think it's um, yeah. It's sometimes the people, there's probably two elements to it. There's one element where uh, people think that the growth is over and oh, you know, it can't possibly go up in value anymore. And people have got that wrong, obviously, yep. a lot of times in the past, right? And so thinking that we've hit this peak and it can never get more expensive, I think that's not right. However, you wouldn't have, we've done over 230, 80 episodes. I'd be very surprised if we've said that. Um, and the reason is I don't think that's really achievable. I don't think that, you know, what's happened in the past is, you know, you haven't gone from one income to two incomes. You haven't gone from one medium or lower income to two very high income supporting property, you know? However... I don't think there is a cap to scarce assets, you know, um, and depending on how scarce that asset is and, you know, turnover rates and, you know, I think, you know, that we could see some significant growth. It just doesn't mean every asset's going to grow at the same pace. I just think that, you know, there's a flight to quality and some assets, you know, you look at parts of Sydney that, you know, you are seeing properties sell at 46 million, right, today, let alone in 50 years' time. So, um, you know, and so... I guess it's just going to be very, you know, those type of growth rates, I don't think they're achievable in the future. If they did, they obviously those numbers look enormous. I'd be doing much smaller growth rates. Um, and, you know, we don't, growth rates don't have to be like that for property to be a good, in, good investment. So, so even if you did a 4 or 5% capital growth rate, depending on what interest rates are, and, you know, et cetera, um, then you might find that the returns on property still make sense because it's leverage versus other asset classes. So, I don't think you need these returns. If you get it, great. But all you can do is buy great assets. And if there is significant growth, they're scarce. They stay super desirable. They don't turn over that often. And um, they will benefit from intergenerational wealth and higher incomes in the future. And so you do get a growth rate that's the highest compared to what other people are getting in the in the, in the market. But are you going to get 6 to 8% capital growth rates over the long next 50 years? I highly doubt it personally. Because like you say, um, I think inflation would have to be really high as well over that period to get those returns. But um, yeah. Although I do think the short answer to that question is yes, at some point, um, you know, the house will be worth $46 million in Melbourne. I mean, and the reason I say that is because I remember when I could not imagine a one-bedroom apartment in Sydney being worth a million dollars, right? It's not possible. No one is going to... No one would ever pay that much money for a one-bedroom apartment. And yet now we see good ones far exceed that. You know, it's not un unusual in some areas to see a really good one-bedroom sell for one, one and a half or more, right? And you just think, how can that be? And so even when I first started in real estate, I remember in my office and, we, you know, we were in Balmain, which is quite an expensive suburb. And, you know, now we're looking at two-bedroom cottages that's sitting around $2 million, you know, and I remember – 
when the first million dollar sale in the office was huge. And and so you have this level of disbelief now because we're thinking about money as it as it currently worth, not as it will be worth. We we're talking earlier about inflation. Inflation will make, you know, the million dollar today is not going to feel like a lot lot of money in 10 years and so on. So by virtue of that, property is going to be worth in the future at some point, you know, money that would make our hair curl now and we just think is completely unachievable. And and what Chris is talking about though is that sustained growth levels, yes, I'm not going to say for one minute that that's going to continue in the way it has been. And I think that that's what I hate about property plans where they model out these growth rates because it's, you know, there's they they're fiction. Like they they really are. No nobody knows what's going to happen. You what you really need to be looking at is comparatively better assets. So you just get the best possible asset then that's going to deliver the best possible result. But the thing too is that and and one of the reasons that why property will, you know, be routinely multi multi million dollars worth in 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 Sydney and Melbourne and other places no doubt is that markets are underpinned by those who already own in them. You know, because when somebody is upgrading, they're not borrowing 100% of what they're buying, not even 80%. They're borrowing whatever the shortfall is between what they just sold in that same area. So that's when you've got, you know, market people trading up in in, uh, markets that they already own in. But I also think too that, you know, this concept of, well, Sydney's had its day. It's a classic one I hear in a lot of investment forums and circles. Sydney's had its day, you know, in certain suburbs or certain locations Probably people are saying about Hobart now. Hobart's had its day. It's like it's never going to go up again. <laughs> you know, never. Get, that's it. One and, one and only time. The property market is no terminus and it's not like a race where basically the first city in this country to get to the, you know, the finish line then wait, sits there and waits like in the Olympics when all the swimmers get to the end of the, end of the pool. It, it's That's not the way it works. They just continue going. They they. They continue in whatever growth trajectory, whatever growth path, or up or down, whatever cycle they're on. That's what that will continue. So, the idea that there's this finite end of the line, um, hard for us to comprehend. But it's not an uncommon thing you hear people say. Yeah, and I think um, you know, there's always things that surprise you. I mean, I can't see that they're going to let borrowing capacity go through the roof like it was, you know, five, ten years ago. You know, ten, twelve times your income, and but. You know, I can see that, you know, things that will happen to increase borrowing capacity. You know, there's such a inherent, um, that's our wealth. That's what supports our construction industry, you know. Um, you know, we're going to keep growing our population. There's, you know, the property markets were, say, $10 trillion, right? And there's $2.4 trillion of debt or $2.2 trillion of debt. There's so much wealth tied up in there that you're slowly getting passed down the generations. Um, and you know, that's getting re-leveraged by the families today, et cetera. So there's wealth coming into the country that's, you know, competing on a small number of assets in our cities and things like that. So, yeah, but I, I think you just got to be really careful uh, and put yourself in the best position, you know, that if you are going to hold an asset long-term, you bought something that's super desirable, it's going to remain super desirable. It's in a little sanctuary or in a little pocket that's likely to stay, um, you know, protected when as the city grows and develops. And, um, and then over time, it becomes more and more scarce because like Veronica said, people are staying in their homes longer, people are living longer, um, and you know, and that means our turnover rate's been reducing, and that's that's reducing the number of listings and supply, and so that's creating this demand supply imbalance that continues to, to happen every year. Now, the other end of the spectrum is our final question. It's from Sophie. Hi guys, love the pod. Thank you, Sophie. I've noticed much of your content is directed in, at investors with massive incomes. It's all relative, I guess. But four out of five Aussies 
earn less than 100 grand per year. Even with a 20% deposit, lenders won't loan enough for the minimum price investment grade property in Australia. I'd love to hear some content directed at the majority of Aussies on these lower incomes who are motivated to invest and where simply increasing the income is not an option, for example, a healthcare worker. Like what kinds of strategies would be implemented? I also ask on behalf of all the single people out there on less than 100K, sadly, no one will marry me. Well, Sophie, I'm, you know, <laughs> that's not the be all and end all anyway, getting married. Right. So um, I think for starters, my initial thoughts on this one, well, in Sydney and in Melbourne, um, probably in Brisbane too now, you need to have a high income in order to be able to invest in a really good property there. That's just, that's the fact of it. So therefore, you're going to be looking elsewhere. So, and then that sort of makes things more complicated because it's much easier if you can just narrow yourself down to the three biggest cities, of course. So, you know, there are opportunities, um, but, you know, let's just rule that out. Um, and there's also ways to potentially to collaborate with other people if you really want to invest in property that way. Because the problem is, of course, with this lower income, in a lot of areas, you might be looking at, um, you know, lower grade property and that's a risk as well. So, that sort of adds to the disadvantage of having a lower income and then over time, if you buy a lower grade asset, it won't perform as well as the properties that people on higher incomes can get as well. So, that sort of, that reinforces that divide. So, I would be looking at ways in which you can potentially collaborate as long as you're never intended to living in it, um, with other people who are like-minded in a similar situation potentially to get uh, better um, quality of assets. So that's just a couple of things right off the cuff for me, but over to you, Chris. Look, I think it's really hard to save on this income. It's really hard to borrow money um, and, you know, I'm not going to argue that it's, then it's also really hard to buy property. And I think the government's doing things like 5% deposit home loans, uh, which is a really good thing to consider, particularly if your salary is under 1.125. But then obviously that can only borrow so much, right? So you might be able to borrow, you know, 400 or 500. Um, look, if if not buying a property and renting is your alternative, then, you know, there's challenges with renting long term. And particularly as you get later in life and instability around that and, you know, health changes and things like that. So, but I think it's just trying to do the best you can with the budget you've got. Um, try to buy something as scarce as you can. Um, something that can't be replicated um, and in an area that's, you know, and it, it may mean that you're pushing to the fringes. It may mean that you have to look at apartments versus houses. It may mean you have to move regionally. Um, but sometimes it's not about investment return. You try to get the best return you can by buying something that is a good asset at that price point. But what you're trying to buy is long-term security and, you know, being out of the, and having to be in the rental market and um, the challenges of that. So, um, that's just the harsh reality. I, I would say that you know sometimes lower budgets force you to assets that aren't scarce, that aren't that desirable. But you just try to play the best cards you've got at that price point. Um, that would be my take. I think too one of the um, one of the initiatives that that are starting to come out is, is shared equity schemes. And yep. I think that these are the sorts of schemes that actually are really well. Um, they're well designed or well targeted. Let me say, not all of them are well designed. <laughs> so be careful here. But it, as a concept, it really is designed to help people in a similar boat to you. And so, where the five 
6% deposit scheme, yes, it's got its income caps and all the rest of it, but the fact is you've still got to have a high enough income to be able to afford to repay a higher level of borrowing for property because um, you've got to borrow 95%, right? So whereas with the shared equity scheme, your borrowing is smaller for the property because the government or if there's a, you know, a, a private um, shared equity scheme such as the one that like Evan Thornley has been putting together for Longview, for example, uh, and look, these aren't endorsements for any of these these schemes. They're just things to look into. Um, what those schemes are around is where you go into partnership effectively with somebody who's purely investing in the property is like a solid investor. And at the end of when you sell or when you uh, earn more money or there's there's certain ways to exit these arrangements, but the idea is for that you can get into a better property at it with a lower level of borrowing, lower uh, repayments at earlier um, by doing this. So there are obviously a lot of restrictions, but this certainly the, you sound like the type of person or the type of situation you're talking about sounds like the sort of ideal candidate for this type of arrangement. So I would I would sort of go down that path and investigate that. It's a really good point. I mean, the government does depending on what state you're in. I'm not sure what you said, but. Um yeah, absolutely. Check out what the government's doing. Like the New South Wales government got the shared equity home buyer scheme. You might be eligible for that because um, you're Victoria right. Victoria has one, and yeah, there's a exactly. federal one too, but it's got it's quite small at the moment. Yeah, and these things will come out more. Yeah, you gotta be careful. Exactly. Yeah. The, the thing that I've been most careful with is I've seen some of this type of thing, and I've certainly seen like um, you know, uh, deposit lending schemes and things like that where it's coming from the developer, so it's effectively like vendor finance in a way, and you are being encouraged to buy into a certain development um, or new property, absolutely run a mile from stuff like that because you get stuck with it, right? Um, they're just trying to get you into their stock. That's that's totally different. I know I ha have had some chats with Evan, for instance. I don't even actually know exactly where they're up to on this, but I know that for them – they need to provide confidence to their investors that, that they're investing in good quality assets. So that's a bit of a benefit. The government schemes, the government doesn't understand what a good asset is. You know, governments are basically throwing money at first home buyers to buy brand new properties. You get incentivized across the board to buy brand new. So the government doesn't necessarily understand what a, what a good asset is. So you've got to make your own mind up and, and make your own uh, investigations there. But all of these these schemes need to be thoroughly looked at before you would join them absolutely all right well that is the end of our q a for this time around we encourage you to send through your questions and we really appreciate um all the questions that come through from listeners and suggestions for guests and topics as well we do appreciate that so keep them coming absolutely i think we're all looking forward to 2024 so if, yeah is there any guests you want us to to try we've probably tried most of them to be honest some, some people won't come on but We've had lots of people say if there's anyone in your mind that would love to try a conversation, we've got some interesting ones in the works as well. If you have a question that you'd like us to answer in an upcoming Q&A episode, you can send us a voicemail or written question via the website, theelephantintheroom.com.au, or you can email us directly at questions at theelephantintheroom.com.au. If you like what you're hearing, please share this episode with others you feel would benefit. And while you're at it, why not leave us an iTunes review? Five stars would be great. I know that sounds a bit cringy, but we have it on good authority that every review helps make it easier for other people to find out about us and hear what our amazing guests have to say.